has never been told. Where the Lamb is the light in the midst of the night, in that beautiful city of gold. Where the sun, where the sun never sets, never sets and the leaves never fade, and the righteous forever will shine like the stars in that beautiful city of gold. There will be no more sorrow, pain, sickness, or death, and the saints, they will never grow old. How I long for that city where there never comes a night in that beautiful city of gold. Where the sun, where the sun never, sets, never sets, and the leaves never fade, and the righteous forever will shine like the stars in that beautiful city of gold. Where the sun, where the sun never, sets, never sets, and the leaves never fade, and the righteous forever will shine like the stars in that beautiful city of gold. In that beautiful city of gold. I like that chorus and song, don't you? That beautiful city of gold. Say we're going to walk on streets of gold one day, amen? Wonderful. Well, 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 take your Bible, turn over to the book of Acts, Acts, Acts chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 4. Again, we've been in our new series as we kicked off the new year, our sole purpose series. And uh, today we're going to address and deal with another aspect of this sole purpose and just kind of show how it all came together. But uh, let's start here in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, Excuse me, verse 4. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and under the uttermost part of the earth. So in this particular passage, we noted again that they were told to remain in Jerusalem, that they were to wait, expecting the Holy Spirit to descend. He assures them that it won't be long, just simply be patient and wait. He's coming. The disciples ask him about a coming kingdom, and understandably so. It had been prophesied in the Old Testament that a kingdom would be established, that Jesus Christ would rule and reign on the throne of David, that Israel would be once again elevated to their elite status among the nations of the world. But instead, the Lord tells them that at this time they needn't be concerned about that coming kingdom. But instead, they would become witnesses, he says unto them. 
He says, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. That's what you need to focus on, gentlemen. You wait for the Holy Spirit to descend. You take time to reflect on what has transpired and taken place. You remember the miracles, and you remember what has been Taken, what has taken place over these last three, three and a half years, and you be prepared because when he falls and he comes, you're going to be witnesses unto me. And in verse 9, the Bible says, And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. So the Lord ascends back to heaven, and he leaves the disciples with a promise and a command. The promise, you will receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. The command, ye shall be witnesses unto me. And from our Lord's last command, we arrive at our new theme, soul purpose. And we recognize as we've taken the time to go through the Word of God that God had a soul purpose. His heartbeat was for the souls of mankind. What he did, he did to save the lost. And he now passes on that responsibility and, and that soul purpose to those who would follow him. Ye shall be witnesses unto me, he said. And although our theme was derived or found out of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we noted that that's not where it all began. So we went all the way back to the beginning, to the book of Genesis. We began to look at the garden, and we recognized something very quickly, that when man fell, it was necessary for God to resume his work. He had begun resting, as we noted. It, it says that he rested that, that seventh day, but hold on, that rest was interrupted when man fell into sin, and all of a sudden, God began his new work, not a physical work of creation, but now a spiritual work to restore and to redeem mankind back into fellowship with him. We saw Adam and Eve, we recognized Cain and Abel, we went on to Noah and Abraham and Isaac, we considered the Passover lamb, we looked at the tabernacle itself, we even noted the day of atonement and the scapegoat, and then we talked about the prophesied Savior. We noted that as Jesus arrives on the scene, he lives a sinless, perfect life. He was the God-man, all God, all man. But as he nears the end of his life on earth, he is betrayed by one of his disciples by the name of Judas. He's falsely accused and ultimately condemned to death. There, the pilot uh, that day, the Roman procurer, he washes his hands and says, I find no fault in him. And what you do, you're going to do yourself. I find no fault. And they said, crucify him, crucify him. And they led him to Calvary, and they nailed him to the cross. And in John 19, 30, the Bible says, When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up the ghost. It is finished. He had fulfilled the law and his purpose for coming to the earth. He laid down his life, and through his sacrifice and his perfect, precious blood, he provided mankind the opportunity to be redeemed and restored back into fellowship with God. And the redemptive work of Christ on Calvary was now complete. Mankind could now find their way back to God once and for all. It is finished. And yet, 
there's something else that took place at that very moment as well. And that is what we want to discuss today. And so let's have a word of prayer and then we'll continue with our service this morning. Father, we come to you today asking that you would speak to our hearts. I'm begging you to walk these aisles and bring conviction and change into lives. Lord, I pray that if there be any that are in this room, this place that are without Jesus Christ, that their heart would be truly reminded of sin, that they would recognize their need of a Savior, that they themselves cannot overcome that sin, but Lord, they must allow you to pay for their sin, and that they would receive and accept Jesus today without delay, and that they would be saved, as the Bible says. I pray, Lord, that you'd be with me and that you'd fill me with your Spirit. I need you today. Please, Father, please fill me. And Lord, may you fill every listener here and may they hear with spiritual ears. Lord, we'll thank you as you do your perfect work in our lives today. We desperately need you to show up and to do what only you can in our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Earlier in our series, we noted the tabernacle and the fact that it was comprised of three major areas. We noted that there was the outer court in which took up a major amount of space. But there within that outer court was the tabernacle itself, the building of the tabernacle. And within that building, there was a holy place, and then there was the holy of holies. So the outer court surrounded the tabernacle proper building. But again, that building was divided into two sections. So the whole tabernacle was three parts, the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. Between the outer court and the holy place was a veil. Between the holy place and the holy of holies was another veil. So you had the outer court. And to enter into the holy place, you had to go through a veil. To go into the holiest of holies, you had to go through another veil. Now, it's interesting to note that as much as we look at a veil and we say, oh, I see, so those veils then represented access points. Not really. They were really stopping points. I mean, these veils limited access. See, only the priests could access the areas beyond the veils and only under specific conditions detailed and described by God in the law. Everyone wasn't permitted in the holy place. Everyone wasn't allowed to go in and make sacrifice or offering. Only particular priests under circumstances. So, Various priests would pass through the veil from the outer court to the holy place, and there they would minister daily. But only the high priest could enter into the holy of holies. And only on that most solemn day, the high priest would enter into the holy of holies and apply the blood to the mercy seat in an attempt to provide atonement on behalf of Israel before God. So the people would gather, but only certain priests under certain conditions could enter into the holy place, cross through that veil, 
And then only the high priest on the day of atonement, as he took the blood of the bullock and sprinkled it on the mercy seat, could enter into the Holy of Holies. We note that that priest, once a year, as we said, would offer an atonement on behalf of Israel. He had to sacrifice a bullock in order for his sin and the sin of his family to be addressed and dealt with. He then would take that blood past the one veil into the Holy of Holies through the second veil and he would sprinkle it upon the mercy seat where God himself dwelt and he would exit and there two goats would be brought. The first goat was slaughtered for the sins of the people. Its blood then was also sprinkled upon the mercy seat. But then there was that second goat. The high priest would then take his hands upon the head of that goat and he would confess all the sins of Israel. And then he would have that goat led out into the wilderness, bearing the reproach and sin of a nation for another year. See, the veil wasn't as much an access point as it was a checkpoint. It kept people out of God's presence. The veil was a constant reminder that sin always separates sinners from God. During the reign of Solomon, David's son, a temple was erected and built. It was 30 cubits high, according to the, according to the Word of God in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 2. That means it was probably close to 45 feet in height. But Herod, he, uh, he increased the height when he built his temple. Herod built it to the height of 40 cubits, which is closer to 60 feet. Now again, we're not exactly certain on a cubit's length. Many have said it's a foot and a half. Others have said it's 22 inches. It just depends on which cubit, because different nations use different measurements. But in general, we see a cubit as being 18 inches. And when we think about the height of, say, Goliath, we consider the cubit normally at 18, which puts him slightly under 10 feet. We understand that in this particular temple, there were these veils again. Even as the tabernacle had the one that separated the outer court from the holy place, there was another veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. This veil, according to Josephus, appears to have been upwards of 60 feet high. Can you imagine a veil 60 feet high? It's twice the size of this ceiling here. Not only that, but Josephus says that that veil itself was near four inches thick by now. It's made of animal skins, thick materials. Here it is thick and heavy and strong. As a matter of fact, Josephus says that you could tie two horses to that veil and they could pull against one another and never tear it. 
In Matthew chapter 27, verse 50, would you turn there, please? Matthew chapter 27, verse 50. Earlier I said, and something else took place at the very moment. The moment that he took his final breath. Notice in Matthew 27, verse 50 and 51. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. Notice again that at a simultaneous moment, Christ says it is finished and closes his eyes in death. And the Bible says that that veil, the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was rent or torn right into something that could not have happened in an instant except it be supernatural. We've cut a lot of things around here. And I mean, we got these new fangled things called sawzalls. You may know. They got a little sometimes smaller and sometimes larger type of a cutting device on it and there's this handle and you carry it around and you can saw off things. I wouldn't touch this, of course. But we would cut steel and we would cut wood and cut all kinds of things. Let me tell you, if I was trying to cut a veil that was close to 45 to 60 feet in height, four inches thick, and was that heavy and that strong, it would have taken a long time, even with modern technology, to cut with a sawzall right down the middle. This happened in an instant. The very moment that Jesus cried, it is finished, and gave up the ghost. I mean to tell you, that was rent. That veil was rent, cut right in half. So what's the significance of that event? Why does that matter? Why is it important at all? Let me give you just three simple thoughts. Number one. The rent veil represented Christ himself. Turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Again, in a sense, the veil was symbolic of Christ himself. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, we'll begin reading in just a moment, but we're going to see that the Bible implies that Christ does indeed represent that veil. Notice what it says here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. The Bible says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Isn't that something? I mean, the the Bible is associating this veil to Christ and his body, this broken body. But it's implying then as if a person hopes to access the Father, he must go through the Son who is the veil. You don't get to God the Father except through the Son. That's what he's saying. And Jesus Christ offered himself a sacrifice on behalf of each and every one of us. 
In John chapter 14, verse 6, the Bible says, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus Christ, again, is represented by that veil. And throughout the centuries, every time that priest made his way beyond that veil, he had to go around or some maybe under, I don't know which. All I know is he didn't go through it. But he had to get there, and he could only enter through with blood. And the Bible tells us that that blood that he carried of lambs and bullocks and so forth, it was representative of one day the Lamb of God which would come and take away the sin of the world and provide us with the perfect, precious blood. And that blood would be applied not just to a mercy seat on earth, but to the mercy seat in heaven. I don't believe all the blood went into the ground that day. I believe the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat in heaven. You say, you're a fool. Well, hopefully I see you in heaven. Because if sacrifice wasn't applied, my friend, it ain't going to work. I'm going to tell you what, that blood was applied that day. I'm convinced because the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that that, that tabernacle was patterned after tabernacle in heaven. And I believe when Jesus told Mary, you don't touch me now, I have yet to ascend i got to go back because I've got a mission yet to accomplish because there's some blood that needs to be applied to a mercy seat up in heaven so that whenever God sees you, he does not see your sin. He sees the perfect, precious blood. We exercise two church ordinances around here, and the Bible speaks of them. It's baptism and the Lord's Supper. We don't do none of that foot cleaning around here. I don't like no hairy toes. No toe jam. We, we, we're going to do this right. We, we need to humble ourselves, I get it, but that right there is going a little too far for me. We do exercise the two church ordinances, though, that we're to continue to, to express and to follow through with in the Word of God, and it's baptism, and it's the Lord's Supper. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, turn there, would you please? Every time we do communion, I read from these passages. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 through 25. <clears throat> there we read, beginning in verse 23. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Man, I'll tell you what he's saying is, he's looking at this and he's saying, okay, fellas, now, the reason why you have fellowship, you're going to have fellowship with me, the, the fact is when you take that communion, I want you to be always remembering why you're taking it and for what purpose. You are taking it in remembrance of what I have done for you. In this particular case, he talks and says, take eat, this is my body, which is what? Broken for you. 
I'm going to tell you that day when Jesus Christ died and said, it is finished and bowed his head and the ghost, the, 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 the ghost left him. I'm telling you, his body was broken. If that's a picture of a broken body, I don't know what else could be. That veil was rent. Torn right down the middle. And I, can I tell you that Jesus' body was rent, if you will. It was torn. It was mutilated. It was disfigured. All on behalf of you and I. And every time we take communion, we're remembering that broken body. And we remember that he alone paid the price for our sin. That he alone purchased us with his blood and his broken body. We see the rent veil represented Christ himself. But not only that, the rent veil represented access to God. Again, that veil stood between God and man in, in, in the tabernacle and in the temple. As we said before, not everyone had access to the holy place, and even fewer, only one, the high priest once a year entered into the holy of holies where actually God resided on the mercy seat. But that's not the case anymore. That veil was torn asunder, indicating that the way to God was no longer blocked but instead opened up, giving access to him always now. It's open now. He's open for business. He's taking visitors, if you will. Amen. In Ephesians chapter 2, turn there, would you please? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. Man, I mean to tell you, when that veil was rent, I, I think sometimes, what did the priests think? Man, I mean, they had this regiment, and they had these rules that they had to keep very meticulously. And I can only imagine... Here they are. They're not under any impression that Jesus Christ was who he claimed to be. Matter of fact, they hated him so much, they sought to crucify him. And now here the veil of the temple is rent. I wonder if somebody came out with a real big needle and some yarn and tried to mend it up. I, I wonder if somebody tried to glue it together with some super glue. I don't know what they did, but they had to do something because they couldn't function or operate with a veil that was rent because you couldn't access God. Only the high priest could. And he didn't want to lose his job. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. He, he ripped it up, man. He tore it right down the middle and said, I'm opening my arms to all of you. You have access to me finally. Now you don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to go through some crucified bullock or lamb. You simply come to me personally. Man, I like that. <laughs> now, because of Jesus Christ's finished work on Calvary, anybody who chooses to, can enter into God's presence and enjoy restored fellowship with him. Hey, by the way, the church and the Christian people ought to be the most accepting people in the world. Because all the only entrance, the only, the only thing that, the, the only way you come into fellowship here at Community Baptist, unlike any other true church in the word of God, is through a belief in Christ and baptism. And that baptism isn't what saves you, by the way. That's just a picture of what Christ has done in your life. And what he did on the cross. 
Well, I'll tell you what, that rent veil represented Christ himself. That rent veil represented access to God. But you know what else? That rent veil represented opportunity to minister. See, today Christ is our great high priest. And being believers in that finished work, we're able to enter into the Holy of Holies also. We become partakers of this priesthood as well. Boy, I tell you what, it wasn't that a uh, couple thousand years ago, though, that you had to be a priest. You had to be a Levi, a Levite, in order to enter in. You had to be the high priest to go there once a year and make atonement. <laughs> Not now. Yeah, these priests would leave the, the outer court, and they had certain duties that took place in the holy place, and they would minister unto the Lord by offering sacrifices. And then one would go in once a year and make an atonement on behalf of the whole nation, ministering unto God on behalf of the people. Not only do we have access to God today, but we can now minister unto him not just once a year as the Old Testament priest, but every day of the year. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, the Bible says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should shew forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness unto his marvelous light. You say, what kind of sacrifices can we share unto God that we can minister unto God with? How about let's bring the sacrifice of praise to him? Look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. The sacrifice of praise. In the book of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, we read about it. It says there in Hebrews 13, 15, by him... By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. The sacrifice of praise. Man, how many wonderful things has God done for you? How many wonderful things has he done for me? When we think about that day that we came to Jesus Christ, that day that we recognized ourselves as the sinners that we are, feeling as though there was no hope, no future for us but a place called the lake of fire. Only to hear that Jesus Christ paid for our sin and shed his precious perfect blood and gave us his broken body on Calvary. And as a result of that payment, if it's applied to my life, it will also spare me the consequences of that horrible fate. Man, I'm so thankful that he died in my place, that he took my place on Calvary. I can offer the praises of God. I can say thank you for dying for me. Thank you for giving me life. Thank you for giving me hope and thank you for giving me heaven. Whew. Thanksgiving of praise. Wow, that, I mean this praise. It's amazing. The sacrifice of praise. But then wait a second. That does lead us to the next because it mentions it's here as well. We can bring sacrifice of thanksgiving. Because you can't praise God without a thankful heart, right? It doesn't happen. We say we're going to praise God. Well, the only reason we have a reason to praise is because we're thankful. Yeah. 
In Amos 4, 5, the Bible says, and offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven and proclaim and publish the free offerings for this liketh you, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord God. Now let me just very quickly state that in the book of Amos, this is not being said in a very positive light. There indeed was, in the, under the Old Testament law, a sacrifice of thanksgiving. However, in a sense, God was pointing to them saying, you guys are all talk and no action. You guys are doing all the right things, but your heart is far from me. That's what he's really saying in the book of Amos. But he says almost like, okay, go ahead then. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven and proclaim and publish the free offerings for this liketh you. That's what you like to do. You like to go out there and pretend to be so spiritual. You like to step out and try to act like you're really praising me and honoring me and serving me when in reality you're not. You're doing it for your own benefit. You're doing it for your own good. You're really not doing this on behalf of me. You're doing it because you just want to look good and you want the praise of men. But that doesn't negate from the fact that we as believers, especially New Testament believers, ought to be making sacrifices of thanksgiving to our Lord. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, the Bible says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Man, we ought to be thankful. And let me tell you something. Man, circumstances and situations in life can come upon us, and boy, if we're not careful, we cease to be thankful. <laughs> Man, it's easy to get a little bit perturbed with God even and say, wait a second, why are you allowing this in my life? How's come you're permitting this to take place? I'm not real happy, God. Don't you see? I'm miserable. But boy, I'll tell you what, as a believer, we have to somehow come to grips with the reality of Scripture, the truth of the Word of God. We've got to stop listening to our emotions and start speaking the word of truth in our own lives. We need to start talking to ourselves instead of listening to ourselves and point out that God is still on the throne and that he's still in control and that whatever he brings into our life, he has there for a reason and a purpose, not only for our good, but the good of all. Boy, that's an easy thing to preach. It's not always easy to live, is it? But it is truth. We can bring the sacrifice of praise. We can bring the sacrifice of thanksgiving. And finally, we can bring the sacrifice of self. Take your Bible, look over at Romans chapter 12. Let's look at verse 1. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul the Apostle has spent 11 chapters now expressing the wonderful wonderful mercies of God, talking to them about the justification that they now enjoy, the sanctification that they, must, that they have opportunity now to live, and the glorification that they will enjoy one day. He goes on to tell them of all the wonderful mercies of God, and then in chapter 12, he brings it all together when he says, I beseech ye therefore, brethren. He said, I'm begging you, I'm begging you, brethren, I'm begging you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. I'm begging all of you, he says. The church at Rome, please hear me, he says. 
I've taken time for 11 chapters to express to you and explain to you the wonderful mercies of God and how He has blessed you and how He's met every need and how He's given you hope for the future and eternity. And I want you to know because of those mercies, I'm asking you on behalf of the mercies of God, as you think about all that God has done and you realize everything that He means to you, I'm asking you now, I'm begging you now to offer yourself a living sacrifice. He goes on to say, by the way, it's only your reasonable service. Man, after everything God's done, isn't it just reasonable to think that we would offer ourselves completely, wholly, without reservation back to the God who gave us everything? That's how it ought to be, isn't it? Can I confess something to you? There are times I hold back me from God. There are times that, well, I'd rather not think about everything God's done for me because I don't want to have to be responsible to do everything he calls me to do and to be everything he wants me to be. Wait, I don't think I'm alone, though, here. I got the sneaking suspicion that in this humanness, this flesh that we live in, sometimes we're trying to take back what's really his. And notice, I think it's important to recognize here in this particular passage, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. Notice it's your bodies that are the living sacrifice. Say, well, my heart is to God. Well, what about your body? What are you using the body for? Does it honor Christ? Do your hands, your feet, your ears, your eyes, your mind, your body, does it honor God? Does it glorify God? Have you laid it on the altar and sacrificed it? Because that's what he's asking for today. We could not do that, truly. It wasn't quite like that in the Old Testament. Didn't have the opportunity. We were still under the law. We're not under law anymore. Man, I mean to tell you that day that Jesus Christ said, it is finished, and he bowed his head, and the ghost left him, and all of a sudden that Temple veil was rent in two. I want you to know from that moment we had access to God. And from that moment we could minister to God in a way that nobody could prior to. And every day we can lay our life on the line. Every day we can say, God, it's all yours. I offer you my praise and I offer you my thanks and I offer you myself. Because now I have access to you. Thank you for allowing me to come face to face with you every day and to minister to you. The veil in the temple was a constant reminder that sin rendered humanity unfit for the presence of God. And that fact, the fact that that sin offering was offered annually, the priest, the fact that he had to go in every year proved that there was no sacrifice on earth that could truly purchase us or pay the penalty for our sin. And so God himself came and became that perfect sacrifice, the only acceptable sacrifice. And only Jesus, through his death, has removed the barriers between God and man. And now we can approach him with confidence and boldness. What was once a shadow or type has become reality now.
The rent veil represents Christ himself, access to God, an opportunity to minister. What a wonderful thing it is to have access to God. But hold on. By the way, it's not enough that the blood was shed and the price was paid for sin. No. No, that's not enough. Each person must personally choose whether or not to have that blood applied to their life by accepting Christ, who is the payment for their sin. You make that decision. I make that decision. And when Jesus Christ again took his last breath, that veil of the temple was torn in two. And today, because of his death, because of his resurrection, we can now be redeemed and restored back into fellowship with God. Will you choose to apply the blood of Christ to your life by calling upon the name of the Lord today? See, I, I, I know some of these things you're talking about. Knowing them is not enough. You must apply those truths to your life. You must accept Christ today as your Savior. I mean, will you permit Christ to pay for your sin, giving you access to God? Because the moment you allow him to pay for your sin, you'll be able to enter into his presence. You say, but I feel like he's already there for me. Don't misunderstand what's going on here. God loves you today, but his love is to bring you to the cross. Again, I I think we misunderstand things. I said this last week, and I think it's important to remember. God's love is not toward you so you can go live your life as you choose without him. His love is to bring you to the Calvary. That's why he died on the cross, to bring you to the cross. Everything that his love points to for the unbelievers always at a cross. Here's evidence of my love for you, the cross. Here's evidence for my love for you, the cross. Here's evidence of my love for you, the cross. Here's evidence for my love for you, the cross. That's where every believer sees the love of Christ. And that's where we need to be brought to. And if you've never gone to that cross and accepted the love of Christ through his broken body and his perfectly shed blood for you as payment for your sin, my friend, that's where you need to meet with him today at the cross. You don't meet him outside in your home. You don't meet him anywhere else in life. You meet him at the cross. And there he gives you salvation. And there he gives you access to him finally. Because it's only in Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Will you enter through the veil and into God's presence today? The only way that happens is through Jesus Christ, because he is the veil. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I love 1 John chapter 5, verse 11. Before I read that, let's all stand. Everyone just looking at me, please. Let's all stand to our feet as we close today. Let me read this passage to you. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, listen to what God's word says. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Boy, I'm telling you, the way has been paved. You need only travel the road now. Christ is the way. You must go through the veil through Jesus Christ. And once you accept and receive his perfect payment for sin, You can walk right on in to the presence of God consistently. You can reach out to God. Oh, God, forgive me and save me. Why? Because of that sacrifice. But, friend, you don't find that anywhere else but at the cross today. I don't know where you're at in your life. 
And boy, as human beings, we are all very good at justifying our lifestyles and our relationships and why we live the way we do, act the way we do, think the way we do. We justify things. I'm not asking you today to change anything. I'm asking you, how does what you think compare to how God sees it? This is all that matters in the end because salvation and eternal life is not going to be found your way, but his way. Will you call on him today? You say, I've been a church member for a long time. You know what? Church membership doesn't get you to heaven. You got to go through the veil, Jesus Christ. Well, I give to the church. I don't, that, you know what? I'm not going to tell you that God, that we don't appreciate giving around here. We do. Costs a lot of money to keep things going, but I'm going to tell you this. If somehow you think that giving is going to get you to heaven, you are desperately wrong. You've got to go through the veil, Jesus Christ. Have you gone through the veil? Well, I grew up in a Christian home. I don't care. I'm telling you, God says, you've got to come his way. That's through the veil. A daddy's not going to get you to heaven. A mama can't get you to heaven. A family can't get you there. Only Jesus can. What will you do with him today? And by believer today, will you offer the sacrifice of praise? Sacrifice of thanksgiving? Will you offer the sacrifice of self to him today? Will we not make excuses for why we don't lay our life down and say, I will lay it down? Father, we thank you now for this time together. We pray, Lord, you'd be glorified in this time of invitation. We'll thank you and we'll praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all bow our heads, every eye closed.